This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM740. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. This is the aforementioned The Conspiracy Show. I am Richard Serrett, your humble host. Come on in, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, warm yourself by the fire. You are among friends. Uh, I see through the glass. Ian Robertson is back. Good to have you back. You were really sick last week, weren't you? Felled by some virus. Uh, tis the season, right? Tis the season. I've uh, luckily been spared so far, but I i think the last two years running, I have had um, pneumonia. And once you get pneumonia, you're very susceptible. So uh, knock on Formica. <laughs> I guess that's what that is. I don't know. Uh, I'm not, everybody tells, oh, get the flu shot, get the flu shot. Listen, I'm not telling you what to do. Everywhere it's advertised, free flu shot, come and get your jab in the arm. There's jingles on the air, get the flu shot, get the flu shot. And, uh, I guess because you're, you know, you're on radio, you're in front of a microphone, I'm supposed to tell everybody to go get the, the flu shot. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to shill. I'm not telling you what to do. I'm not telling you to get the flu shot. I'm not telling you to not get the shot. I don't get the flu shot. I don't do the flu shot. I'm not going to shill for the uh, flu vaccine manufacturers. Capiche? Are we straight on that? <laughs> Sorry. Oh, I sound like a real crank. Uh, if I'm not careful, I may be visited by three spirits starting around midnight on Christmas Eve. Uh, Albert Vinzel is, uh, is here, as per usual, running our Hangout on Air. How is that? Are we up and running? Excellent. He gives me the thumbs up. He doesn't speak much. He's very mysterious. Uh, if you want to watch the uh, the radio program and stream it live on YouTube, you just go to my Twitter feed, at Richard Serrett. I'll spell that for you, S-Y-R-E-T-T, at Richard Serrett, S-Y-R-E-T-T. You go to the top of the feed, or near the top, and you'll find the tweet with an H-O-A, that's Hangout on Air, and uh, you just click on that link, presto, you are in, and you can see uh, me... Sitting here in my seasonally appropriate attire, my red sweater, and hopefully, if everything's working properly, you'll see our guests on their webcams as well. Uh, David Yurth is standing by. He's an inventor, co-founder of Nova Institute of Technology. He's in Salt Lake City, and he, uh, the inventor of a device. This is groundbreaking stuff, I gotta tell you. You really want to pay attention to what you're about to hear. Uh... They have completed the successful testing of something called the Corona Discharge Gas Plasma Disassociation System. There will be a test afterwards, so pay attention. CDGPDS, trademark, Corona Discharge Gas Plasma Disassociation System. It's essentially a device that eradicates all exhaust fumes produced by internal combustion engines before they leave the tailpipe. All right, not just for 
a vehicle, not just for a passenger vehicle. This can also work on a refinery, for example, or a, uh, a coal-burning uh, electricity plant. It's the end of air pollution, essentially. And CO2, for those of you who subscribe to anthropogenic global warming, you know uh, I have been very uh, vocal. Uh, I'm on the record as saying I do not subscribe to that. However... CO2, carbon monoxide, doesn't matter. What's ever coming out of the tailpipe, it is gone. With this device, it has been uh, tested successfully. Now, I spoke to David Yurth uh, a couple weeks ago, or uh, maybe a little bit longer, on, on Coast to Coast. And uh, we, we talked at some length. But I feel so strongly that this technology is a game changer, a paradigm buster. I know that's a cliche, but in this case, I believe it's true. And so I have brought David on tonight uh, just for an hour uh, to uh, reprise our, our previous conversation, albeit a truncated version. Think about it. With this device, we can essentially burn fossil fuels with abandon. We can uh, bring an industrial revolution to developing countries and provide cheap, plentiful coal to these places. I know the... Uh, the carbon Nazis, as they, have they been called in some quarters? They don't like to hear that word, coal. We're supposed to be eradicating coal. We no longer burn coal uh, to provide electricity here in, in Ontario. But it's cheap. It's plentiful. Why not? But why not bring coal, uh, coal-burning plants to places like Africa, the developing world? We could lift billions of people out of poverty. Why don't they get their industrial revolution? Well, we can. Let me just uh, um, crib here from a press release from David Yurth. The CO2 device can be retrofitted to every internal combustion engine on the planet. The device can also be adapted for use in gas vents, used in refineries, exhaust stacks for incinerators, and more than 100 other common uses. David Yurth, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Hi, Richard. Nice, nice to see you again. Nice to see you and hear you again. All right. Uh, for those who uh, weren't uh, along for the ride during our first go-around a couple of weeks back on Coast, uh, give us the, uh, the Coles Notes version of how this CO2 device works exactly. Uh, let me just say before we begin that um, I, I really appreciate the opportunity to be with you tonight. Uh, we we did pretty well when we got together on Coast to Coast, and our uh, our response from your listeners on the Coast to Coast program is nothing short of overwhelming. That's terrific. That's good news. It took about two weeks for us to work our way through all of the emails that we received, so uh, somebody must have been paying attention. I'm glad to hear it. Well, let's see if we can yeah. do the same thing tonight. Well, I hope so. I hope so. Um, you know, let me just preface my remarks by saying that you know, we've been around long enough to know that when it comes to dealing with issues related to the environment, there really is no silver bullet. The problem's complex because the world's a big place and there are lots of sources of contamination, uh, all of which are related to some kind of a human activity that's indispensable. So, you know, we've watched what's happened with the climate change debate. We've watched what's going on in Paris. We've watched what's gone on with cherry-picking the science and the political machinations that 
been dancing back and forth and all around this issue. And nobody's actually solving the problem. But we don't we don't really care much at Nova Institute about the politics of it. Um, when I write novels about science, uh, I always begin by asking the question: If you could, dot dot dot, would you? And the follow-on question then becomes: If you did, what would happen? In this case, the question is: If you could dissociate, remediate, do away with contaminating noxious, polluting gases generated by the combustion of fuels and prevent those contaminants from getting into the environment, would you? And from our point of view, the answer is unequivocally yes, we would. Yeah, ask the people in China right now, in, in, in places like Beijing, where the uh, the pollution index is off the charts. I mean, they are artists are making solid bricks from the particulates in the air. That's how bad the air pollution is in China right now. But that's true in Mexico City. It's true in other places on on the planet. Forty years ago, when I was living in Japan, when I was a when I was a dependent there, um, people were already wearing face masks uh, because the contamination of the air in the Tokyo uh, metropolitan area was so lousy that uh, it was it was killing people, it was making them sick. So you know, the question is, if you could, would you? And the answer is yes. And the follow-on question is, if you did, what would happen? Well, three things are going to happen. The first thing that's going to happen is that we're going to give people hope that the planet we live on is not, by default, destined to take all of us to extinction because we can't control ourselves. Uh, the second thing that's going to happen is that there are going to be some important changes that are made possible by the advent of a brand-new technology. The third thing that's going to happen is there are going to be some big winners and there are going to be some big losers. And that's not our problem. Our problem is that as long as human industry continues to pump 30 million tons of contaminating greenhouse gases into the environment every day, the planet has almost gotten to the point at which it can no longer assimilate those gases and, and, and survive uh, the, uh, the results of all of the pollution. And it's not just greenhouse gases. There are lots of things that contaminate our planet, and, you know, we don't, we don't pretend to be able to deal with all of them. Well, but with this, one, with this one, we do know what to do. Right, right. We're not talking just about, again, CO2. There's carbon monoxide. There's benzene right. and the, all of the... The exhaust profile of anything you burn contains basics. You always get carbon particulates. It takes various forms. In power plants, it becomes ash. In uh, forest fires, it becomes soot. Uh, when you burn wood and coal, it becomes carbon particulates of one kind or another. You always get carbon dioxide, which is a natural product of combustion. The carbon in the fuel is dissociated, and it combines with oxygen and makes carbon dioxide. Carbon monoxide is also a common product of combustion. And carbon monoxide is a product of combustion that is not efficient. The less efficient your combustion is, the more carbon monoxide you get in the exhaust profile. And you get oxides of nitrogen. In some cases, you get oxides of sulfur. And sometimes you get oxides of mercury. 
And then when you get into more exotic fuels, uh, when you mix oil with gasoline and burn it in a two-stroke engine, then you get a half a dozen more uh, carbon long-chain hydrocarbon molecules that are, that are terribly carcinogenic. That's the blue smoke that comes out the back of a two-stroke motorcycle or a tuk-tuk. What about benzene? There are, only, there are only one and a quarter billion of those on the planet now. So, wow. you know, if you can figure out how to dissociate those gases before they get out of the tailpipe, why in the world wouldn't you? And you have. And you have. Well, we have. And this is not... This is not something that happened overnight. I mean, this is not like winning the lottery. We didn't just fall into this. Uh, this this thing going on for a long time. But uh, the research. Go ahead. No, I, I was going to say because we're coming up on a break here. But uh, but but to to cut to the chase. I mean, you sent out this press release, and yeah. let's let's be honest. I mean, it was met with, well, at least from the MSM, the mainstream media. Um, a thundering silence. Is that fair? That's <laughs> exactly right. Yes, it is. Well, uh, we need to understand why that is. And uh, I think, you know, most of us can sort of figure that out. Uh, but we will explore that when we come back. David Yurth, Nova Institute of Technology. He's got a device that can essentially eradicate air pollution. Or for those of you who subscribe to man-made global warming, get rid of CO2 emissions. But nobody seems to be listening. Ha, huh, go figure. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show, my name is Richard Serrett. Hang out a while, will you? Here's the headline that went out back in September on a uh, PR release. Breakthrough CO2 technology eliminates vehicle exhaust fumes at the source. David Yurth is with Nova Institute of Technology in Utah. He joins us on the line. And um, um, so the, the CO2, let's talk about that. Uh, you found a way, and CO2, as, you, as you've said, is a very stable uh, gas. It's a happy gas. Uh, and so the difficulty has been Unwinding it or disassociating the the component parts of this it's a it's a, a three atom molecule one carbon two oxygen you found a way with this device to unwind it correct that's correct and that's part of the problem nobody believes it can be done correct that is part of the problem you know the standard procedure for evaluating dissociation uh, that's commonly practiced in the physics and science community reduces everything to a single lowest common denominator. And uh, whenever the techniques of single source excitation are applied to carbon dioxide, they, they only operate at a nominal uh, efficiency. The, the conventional wisdom is that it takes so much energy to dissociate carbon dioxide that it's not worth it, that it's not, it's not possible to dissociate the gas in anything like an energy-efficient way. And that's, and that's the prevailing opinion. That's what science says. Uh, we know that's not true now. It's a long time to figure out what to do that wasn't being done before. So when this press release went out uh, and you were getting, I'm assuming, at least some 
queries from uh, maybe some scientific journals, maybe not, I don't know, but uh, if, if, in, if that was in fact the case, what would they say or what would their response be when you say, well, we've done this, we've successfully tested it, it's in the lab, it works, we are disassociating CO2, what would you get on the other end? Click, or I don't believe it, click. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, the first time uh, CO2 gases were successfully dissociated using the precursor for this system was in 2008 uh, by associate scientists that we worked directly with in the United Kingdom uh, under private contracts that were controlled by confidentiality agreements. They were able to use a combination of plasma discharge devices and properly calibrated high-voltage discharge systems to dissociate gas molecules uh, with 100% dissociation in both gasoline and diesel-powered engines. They tested uh, high-powered sports cars, and they tested diesel-powered taxi cabs in Scotland. And uh, all of that data is available to us. Uh, we've been looking at it, working on it, developing the techniques and the technologies and the devices. Uh, if this was easy, it would have been done a long time ago. And uh, part of the problem, Richard, we talked about this before, is that in order for this to happen, the, the molecule that makes up carbon dioxide, uh, I don't know whether Albert has this available for your online uh, listeners, but I posted uh, an illustration of a carbon dioxide molecule. Uh, Do you have that, Albert? Can we, yeah, he's got that. He's pulled that up. So those on the yeah, HOA on the, can In the upper right-hand corner of the image. And if you look at that molecule, what you see is carbon in the center and two oxygens connected to either end. And the molecule is linear. That means that unlike water, which is more V-shaped, with the hydrogen in the middle and two big oxygens uh, uh, separated from each other out on the outside of the energy field. With this molecule, you can't, you can't take advantage of the oscillation that goes on in water between the oxygens. These oxygens are out on the end and they're spinning. One of the, in, one of the illustrations that's also on that page, Albert, is, a, is an illustration of an energy field that operates with torsion, with spin. Um, Paul Murad uh, and his colleagues did a terrific job of helping us understand what these fields look like uh, in a book called Torsion Physics, A View from the Trenches. And what you see here is a digital representation taken from mathematical data that shows how the spin field of an oxygen uh, interacts with the spin field created by a carbon. If you see the oxygen on one end and the carbon on the other, you can see that that torsion that operates between them is literally what attracts those atoms together. And when you get one out on each end, the carbon dioxide molecule is very nicely balanced, both in terms of mass and in terms of the energy sums uh, and in terms of electrodynamic charges. So when you apply a laser or a radio frequency burst or a microwave or a magnetic field or some other kind of excitation method to this molecule, all you get to do with a single excitation source 
is to overexcite that spin. So you can bend it a little, uh, you can stretch it a little, you can compress it a little, but you can't torque it out of shape like you can a water molecule. So what we've done instead was to take a page uh, ultimately out of uh, papers written by the Russian Academy of Sciences uh, in a document published in, two th- in, in, 19, you know, let's see, in 1976. Um, Russian uh, theoretical physicists talked about what happens in three-atom molecules when uh, an array of properly calibrated plasma fields are applied to, to, to gas molecules. And what, what we've done in the interim since then is about 10 years' worth of work understanding how the use of various kinds of apparatus can be used to alter the spin that creates the attractive fields. And it, you have to think about it in terms of music. Uh, music operates with resonances, and when it sounds good, it means the resonances are, are in a harmonic state. When it sounds terrible, it's because they're dissonant. Right. And what we do, the reason the carbon dioxide molecule is a happy molecule, is because those oxygens spin out there on the end of that thing in an enormous range of temperatures, from minus 160 Fahrenheit to over 350, 3,500 degrees Fahrenheit, without coming apart. That means the temperature is not going to suffice to take them apart. Right. What we do know, though, is if you can alter the music, the resonance of the spin, if you can interdict the spin periodically, even momentarily, so that the spin no longer attracts the atoms together, they will come apart. Aha. So, All right. So what we've done is developed a very simple, inexpensive, very effective device that Uh, In the beginning, we designed it to be a new kind of plasma-emitting spark plug. But we adapted the design and the physics, the materials, the architecture, the geometry, the electronics, all of the things that go into it, so that when we use a combination of three of these devices, and in this illustration that uh, Albert uh, has available, you see a picture of the the early-stage prototype with three of the plasma emitters sticking out the side of a tube. The exhaust goes through the middle of that tube, and each of those uh, emitters attached to its own power supply, um, that's the unit right there, each one of those uh, units that's sticking out through the side is connected to a high-voltage power supply, generate upwards of 200,000 volts. And, and there's no, uh, with these gases going through this device uh, and the, the, the voltage required, uh, there's no danger of explosion or fire or anything like that? None whatsoever. None whatsoever. None at all. We're and, in an enclosed uh, uh, environment inside a, uh, an exhaust pipe. Uh, we're not creating any pressures that don't already exist. All right. We're not igniting fuel. We're dismantling it. How, how big is the device, and where does it go on the car, for example? Well, it, it, the current device, as you see it there, is an early prototype. We used this one to dissociate cold fog water vapor. We can set water vapor on fire. 
inside this apparatus, and we have video clips that show how it works. Yeah, that's a whole other show that we'll do on the water engine. <laughs> it's, a whole, it's a whole different animal, but it proves the concept. If you can unwind water on the fly in open air with a plasma field and ignite it, it creates very bright light, like a Coleman camp lantern, lots of noise, electromagnetic fields, and heat. And what it means is that by dissociating in the plasma and recombining those materials, we liberate a huge amount of energy. In a properly designed engine, that energy can be harnessed to create shaft torque or do a bunch of other kinds of work functions. So in other words, not only are you eliminating the noxious fumes and CO2 that's coming out of the tailpipe, you're dramatically increasing fuel efficiency, uh, engine wear, and so forth. This piece goes on the end of the tailpipe, but the plasma plugs that replace your spark plugs have an extraordinary effect on the fuel efficiency and the nature of the exhaust profile that's produced when the engine is running. So the combination of these two technologies for automobile exhaust is an end-to-end solution. You get much better fuel economy, you get much better engine life, and you destroy all of the noxious gases before they get out of the tailpipe. So if someone were to order, let's say the President of the United States uh, and other leaders of G8 countries uh, were to uh, order auto manufacturers to make this device that you have created standard equipment on all new automobiles and perhaps some sort of a, a tax or a, some sort of a credit um, voucher could be uh, utilized so that people could retrofit their existing automobiles with this device. Uh, I mean, that's the low-hanging fruit in terms of CO2, right, the automobile? Well, you'd think so. Yeah. You'd think so. We had some conversations with uh, domestic automobile uh, manufacturers uh, as early as September. And what we discovered is that the not-invented-here syndrome is alive and well in the American automobile industry. Hmm. We published our press release as a matter of accident more than anything else, just 48 hours after the Volkswagen emissions scandal was aired by the world's media. Yes, you think they'd be and, they'd be beating a path and, to your door. That that's right. And and Volkswagen's people did call us, and uh, we are in the process of beginning this kabuki with them. Uh, we're hopeful <laughs> that we'll be able to provide them with an end-to-end solution in a way that will snatch victory from the jaws of imminent disaster for them, and do it in a way that really serves the public interest. But it's also a um, um, I don't want to, I don't want to use the word wonderful, but it's a it's a it's a perfect illustration of why we, for example, we vote for change and change never comes because there's something inherent in the system uh, that prevents innovation like this from well, somehow percolating yeah. up there, to the people there, that make there's the decisions. There's a dynamic that operates here. The, this piece that's on the screen now. There's a book I wrote, which was published uh, just this last year, called the Ho Chi Minh Guerrilla Warfare Handbook. It's a strategic guide for innovation management. And what it talks about is exactly this issue. If you invent a fabulous new technology that really solves a huge global problem, you know, how do you get, how do you survive the transition from the laboratory to the marketplace? The same forces that Ho Chi Minh had to deal with are exactly the same forces that we have to deal with. Only we have the advantage 
in hindsight, of learning how he won a war that he was absolutely supposed to lose. All right, so, we've got that music uh, percolating up here, uh, David, so that means we've got to duck away here just momentarily. We'll come okay, back. And, rock on. All right, we'll be back. David Yurth, Breakthrough CO2 Technology Eliminates Vehicle Exhaust Fumes at the Source. It's real. This ain't April 1st. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. All right, David Yurth stays with us. Breakthrough CO2 technology. And, uh, well, here's an interesting um, thing that happened. Uh, You mentioned Volkswagen, and your press release went out, was it, what, 48 hours after the emissions, uh, the diesel emissions scandal? That's right. And they did call you, but what was happening there is they couldn't figure out how to refer you to the decision makers within Volkswagen. They're not set up, in fact, for that, right? They don't know. That, isn't that very telling about the way corporations work? They don't know how to get you to someone with ears to hear that can make the important decisions at Volkswagen. Is that, is that essentially what happened? Well, in the beginning, yes. Um, we've made considerable progress in the last two or three weeks. Uh, we're in the process of exchanging some documents uh, with their legal people. Uh, our legal counsel has now uh, made himself available to work with them. We have an attorney who uh, is affiliated with our group that is a, a naturalized uh, American citizen from Germany, a native German speaker, who is also licensed to practice law in Germany. So we think we've got a pretty good shot at being able to communicate clearly with Volkswagen senior management uh, when we get to the point where everybody's comfortable enough to uh, begin talking about these issues. The real issue here is that it's difficult to overcome the inertia that is part of the conventional wisdom. Uh, when science has been telling you for 50 years that it can't be done, and then somebody turns around and says, yeah, but we've done it, there's a certain amount of residual resistance there that you have to overcome, and it has to do with establishing sufficient credibility with people so that they can begin to see that this is not just some nutty idea, but it, it is a fact. It is a, uh, an unequivocal, unarguable, demonstrable fact. So our challenge now is to begin having conversations with people uh, at the top of the pyramid in the energy industries uh, who not only want this kind of a solution to come to bear on the problem because of the obvious economic consequences, but because they understand, as we do, that you can't continue to indiscriminately contaminate the planet without paying a long-term price. So, and I have to say that uh, we've had some extraordinarily uh, encouraging responses from people in the provinces in Canada. Excellent. Uh, Excellent. We're, we're really excited about the kind of responses and inquiries that we've gotten in the last two and a half weeks from folks who are in the coal industry. I mean, the provinces of, uh, of, of Canada now are struggling under the threat of the closure of coal mines and coal-fired power plants by 2030. Uh, it's destined to create at least a $9 billion deficit uh, in the uh, economy of Alberta uh, uh, by itself. Uh, who knows where that would go if it were to happen. This technology simply says that with the right kind of partners, 
the science can be engineered and adapted so that emissions created by burning coal can be eliminated before they get into the environment. Well, you you also tried to reach out to the, the people at the UN that were, were, were putting yeah. on this CO2 conference, a global warming yeah, conference in we, Paris. We tried to get in touch with uh, Christiana Figueres and the people at the United Nations Climate Change uh, Agency group there in the UN. And... Uh, you know, we were we were unable to penetrate the the insulation. They're pretty well insulated. Yeah. Um, we've been in touch with a number of the NGOs that have positioned themselves as information distributors uh, with respect to the cockamamie ideas that people are are talking about using to remediate the consequences. They're not talking about solving the problem. What they're talking about doing is putting a Band-Aid on the consequence. It's always the stick, too, and never the carrot. Well, and, and, that's right. And, and here's my theory. This is reactive, Richard. You know that. Well, here's my theory, because if, if they were interested in actually solving the problem, uh, then they would look to innovators like yourself. But it isn't about solving the problem. It's about offering the cure. And the cure is control and carbon tax and getting people out of private automobiles. Uh, that's the agenda I see. Uh, Look, there, there are all kinds of agendas that have, have everything to do with cherry-picking the science, exploiting the opportunities that are created by the pretext of climate change as an uncontrollable, irremediable condition. Either regulations are going to get imposed on those who produce the gases, or advantage is going to be taken for alternatives that don't do anything about the problem but create an economic opportunity. So anytime we see people like Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos and the rest of the 21st century equivalent of the robber barons talking about throwing billions of dollars at the problem, we know, based on everything we've seen them do in the last 25 years, that this has nothing whatsoever to do with cleaning up the mess and everything to do with taking advantage of the problem. Exactly. So, you know... I mean, I've responded. I've been invited to respond to invitations to to participate in the Grand Exploration Challenge by the Gates Foundation for years. And the technologies that get awarded there are all mainstream technologies developed by people who are part of government-sponsored laboratories and university laboratory programs who are all part of the cult of science. Yes, nicely put. David, got to jump in. We'll uh, take one final time out, come back and talk about other applications for David Yurth's device. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Final segment with David Yurth from Nova Institute Technology, Salt Lake City, and uh, we're talking about this CO2 disassociation technology, a device that will eliminate all exhaust fumes from the the tailpipe of an internal combustion engine. But it gets even better than that because, as you mentioned, uh, David, uh, coal-burning plants that generate electricity. Uh, Imagine bringing coal plants uh, to Africa uh, to be able to burn coal almost with abandon in order to give um, Africa and, and the developing world the industrial revolution that seemed to have passed them by. Imagine being able to live to lift billions of people. Was it something like uh, I think it's about five of the seven billion people live on less than two dollars a day. Imagine being, deli- being able to lift them out of poverty and 
that's going to take an industrial revolution in some in, in some ways. Uh, we could do that now. Uh, cheap, plentiful coal. It's it's, it's untapped virtually, uh, but we can do that with David Yurth's technology. That to me, that's what has me uh, so excited about this, David. What we know about the problem, Richard, is that there really is not a single solution. When you ask the question, if you could remediate all the exhaust gases from burning coal, would you? The answer is yes, of course we would. The other question, what would happen if you did, is a potpourri of unanticipated consequences. If people can indiscriminately burn as much fuel as they need without contaminating the planet, what happens? We don't know. What we do know is that these are bridge technologies. We're on the cusp in our own inventory of technologies, things that we've been developing by ourselves and jointly in research and development efforts with other people. You can see that inventory on our NOVA website by going to the technology page. What we know about this conversation is that if this technology were made ubiquitously available for everybody that burns coal everywhere in the world tomorrow, it would still take two or three full generations for the new technologies which, require, which can produce power and perform work without burning any fuel at all to find their way into the marketplace. Right, this we is rich technology. Those technologies are. We've designed them, we're building them, we're testing them. We've posted some of them open source on the Internet, on Sterling Allen Pure Energy Systems Wiki and on a variety of other, of other websites. We know that the day of burning fuel to create energy is limited by its very nature. Science is now getting better and better at finding ways to tap the energy that becomes available via the physical vacuum. We published a science model of fine-scale physical interactions as an open-source science monograph on the Internet in 2005. That document gives us the conceptual basis for designing and building machines that burn no fuel, that create no exhaust. And it was in the, in the pursuit of building those engines that we came to grips with this technology, the plasma corona discharge uh, emitter technology that's being used to dissociate exhaust gases. We've worked with others who have developed ceramic materials that just sit there and, and uh, produce electric uh, current. They don't burn anything. They operate according to a principle known as nuclear magnetic spin. Those technologies are real. They've been working for 10 years. They're about to find their way to the market. The day will come when people will never have to plug in their cell phones or their computers again because they'll be powered by ceramic electrodynamic wafers that burn no fuel, that produce power from the physical vacuum, and create no exhaust. But as you that say, that's going to take three or four generations. Fossil fuels are with us for the next time. 50 years. And, uh, and I don't have that much time. I'm an old guy. And what I've got to do before I, before I cross over is find a way to get the technologies that we do know how to do into the marketplace in a way that solves the problem so that the beautiful places I went to when I was a boy can be beautiful again for my grandson. If Volkswagen said yes tomorrow, yep. how long would it take 
for you to start <clears throat> manufacturing these uh, these units and get them into all brand new vehicles? Well, it's a two part answer to us to a very simple question. If I were doing it, we would have modules ready to go to manufacture to retrofit on 11 million diesel cars within a year. If I'm a German corporation, it'll take three to five years uh, just because of the way they operate. Uh, and that's just the nature of the beast. And price We're per unit? Happy about what we do. We have a manufacturing partner who knows how to set this stuff up and get it running. The materials and technologies that we use are off the shelf generally in ubiquitous availability through a variety of different supply chains. So nobody's going to buy up the source of supply and prevent us from getting into the market. It was up to me it would take a year. For most original equipment manufacturers, if you put this technology, the spark plugs, the electronics, the dissociator technology into an original equipment, brand new automobile rolling off the assembly line, two important things happen. One, you're going to get rid of the catalytic converter because it has no useful purpose anymore. That's going to reduce the cost of your automobile by four to $6,000 per car. What it's also going to do is liberate 12 to 15 horsepower to the rear wheels. It's also going to mean that you're going to burn air and fuel at a 40 to 1 ratio instead of the current 15 to 1 ratio, which is typical for most internal combustion engines. So an increase in gas mileage by what, 50%? By 100%. 100%? Yes, sir. If you're burning 15 to 1 and you can get more horsepower and burn 40 to 1... That's what this technology does. We're doing it today in our laboratory. Oh, boy. Could that be today. another obstacle with, uh, could there be some resistance there then on the part of the manufacturers, big oil? They want you to burn lots of gas. I don't think so. I mean, if I was an oil producer, you know, why would I be in resistance to being able to sell petroleum fuels as an extrinsic source of supply to people who can burn all the fuel they need to burn to do whatever they need to do and not contaminate the environment. Mm, right. I mean, just in our rinky-dink little place in Salt Lake City, Utah, the Utah Petroleum Owners Association spent $2 billion in 2014 just in marketing and media relations, just to prove what good guys they are. Right, right. So, you know... Somebody needs to pay attention. This solves that problem. So we you mentioned with it, people ought to be our best friends. With the German uh, culture in terms of their auto auto industry, it Look, would take two to three I think, years. I think Volkswagen is a victim of their own uh, corporate institutional myopia. It happens to all corporations at some point. They have an opportunity to make good on the promises they made to the governments that subsidized them and the consumers who trusted them and bought their equipment. We can show them how to fix those cars so that not only do they perform far better than they would before, but they produce no exhaust emissions at all. And it's going to cost a whole lot less than Volkswagen had planned on spending just to fix the problem in the way their engineers think they can solve it. And they can't. If I wanted to ret retrofit my vehicle, let's say this, you start manufacturing these, what would be the, the – what do you imagine would be the, the, the retail price for this device? I take it to my well, mechanic. We don't, we don't know for we sure. This is Kitty Hawk days for this technology. You know, it took 35 years for the right flyer to become a DC-3 
we don't think it'll take that long for this technology to get mature, but it's going to take a little time. Our best guess, based on everything we know, is that a fully configured retrofit for a four-cylinder engine probably going to cost us about $250 to manufacture, which means that the price going out the door installed is going to be somewhere between $400 and $500. And what about a device for a, a coal-burning a plant? Well, it depends on how the coal-fired power plant is configured. Most power plants, uh, like the ones in, in uh, the provinces in Alberta, you know, they produce 750 megawatts, but they've got a whole bunch of small units uh, that are 75 to 100 megawatts each that are pumping exhaust gases into a common smokestack. If the technology can be adapted to a scale that fits each one of those floating bed furnaces, then that technology is not going to cost a lot of money. Uh, and it's not going to be difficult to implement. We mentioned air pollution is a, is a very, very serious problem all over the world, but in China right now, and, and they seem to be very serious about doing something about it. Do you have interest they from the... serious. They, they're killing their people. Yeah. Do you have, uh, do you have interest... The that, that drives that country is a kind of a two-edged sword. You know, they don't need anybody's permission to do whatever they please, but they can't figure out how to apologize for doing things that kill their own people without losing face. So... You know, the political exigencies of doing business with the People's Republic of China are complicated by the way they operate. What we do know is that our technology uh, will eventually find its way to China. Uh, we're happy to talk with people who uh, are willing to have a conversation with us about the strategic issues that need to be addressed in order for that to be done effectively in a way that protects the technology, but which also makes it available to solve the problem. Give and our it, listeners you know, an assignment, David. Give us a website and an assignment. I'm sorry, I didn't understand the question. Give my listeners an assignment. In other words, uh, a call to action here. Yes. Do you have one for my listeners? Tell them what you want them to do. What we want them to do is communicate with us uh, they can communicate with us via our website at uh, www.novaiot.com. They can communicate with me on my personal website, davidgyurth.com. Uh, they can communicate with us via our Facebook page for Nova Institute of Technology, or they can communicate with me and the members of our senior executive management team. Each of us have web pages on LinkedIn. Uh, what we want to know is how do we join hands with people who have access to the resources and the contacts that can get this technology out of the laboratory and into the marketplace to solve the problem without losing our traction as we cross the minefield. We're looking for good strategic partners, and we're anxious to hear from them. Here in Ontario, uh, we have Magna. Are you familiar with Frank Stronach, uh, his company? Uh, Frank, I don't believe, mm -hmm. is in, involved mm -hmm. in the company more, but Belinda Stronach, Magna. Uh, yep. they, they, have, they seem to be innovators. Uh, has there been any communication with Magna? Not that I'm aware of. Hmm. All right. We've had a number of contacts come in from people who've been in the coal business, who've been in... Uh, the government agencies in the provinces at the highest level. Uh, we've been talking with folks who 
uh, have capitalized many of the energy companies that are in the energy generation business in Canada. Uh, we're very encouraged by the conversations we're having with those folks. One, they want to solve the problem. Two, they have the resources. Three, they have the vision. And four, they're really excellent people. Well, David, so, I'd like to, um, uh, to check in with you periodically on this program and uh, also uh, on Coast and uh, see if we can't, you know, push this thing along a little bit. I'll do my little part uh, because... What, what, you know, what good am I if I, if I can't put these uh, airwaves to, to, to some use in that regard? Thank well, you, David. I, I, just, I just want to thank you so much for your kindness and extending the courtesy of being able to have this conversation with your listeners. Uh, I also want to thank our partners at the Dandelion Books, who, who have been so good to help us get these technologies uh, into the market, who've been publishing our our books and, and providing information for our supporters. We've got a great team. Okay. And we're looking for good partners, and we really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. My pleasure, David. Thank you for this. All right. Strangeplanet.ca is the website. Follow me on Twitter at Richard Serrett, and as always, follow the truth. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Well, hello. Thanks for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, your taxi, your camper, RV, that greasy spoon, diner just off the interstate, your cabin in the woods. A special hello to all of you listening in on our flagship station right here in the Liberty Village neighborhood of Toronto, Zoomer Radio, AM 740, 96.7 FM. All of you listening in on one of our uh, growing list of affiliates, of course, the podcast available at iTunes, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn.com, TalkZone.com, uh, and of course the uh, the apps, Zoomer Radio uh, and the Conspiracy Show app, both free, available at uh, Google Play, iTunes. Take us wherever you go. Uh, welcome to those joining us via the Hangout on Air, the HOA on YouTube. Uh, and incidentally, if you miss the live stream, which is going out right now, uh, well, let me just back up. If you want to get on to the live stream and watch the Hangout on air, just go to my Twitter feed, at Richard Serrett, S-Y-R-E-T-T, at Richard Serrett, and go to the top of the feed, click on the HOA link, and you're in. Uh, but if you miss the live stream, you can go uh, to our YouTube channel, and uh, they're archived there. And that's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Just go to YouTube and just do a search, and that'll take you to our YouTube channel. Uh, so, wherever and however you're listening and watching, I thank you and I welcome you. I just wanted to mention uh, to our American uh, listeners, the Conspiracy Show television program, the first three seasons now available at Hulu. Uh, that's in the U.S. only. Okay, so the first three seasons, 44 episodes, now available on Hulu. Uh, Kevin Estrella is a remarkable musician. He's a guitarist uh, with a band called Pyramids on Mars who uh, cites Joe Satriani, David Gilmour, Rush as uh, major influences. But to that list, he would also add another influence, uh, perhaps one that's, well, off-planet, an extraterrestrial influence. Uh, we lost... 
Michael, um, I, th- I think it's Luckland. Michael Luckland uh, was the, the author. Um, now, I think I may have the name incorrect. I'm going to go back and check. But Michael Luckland wrote a book called Alien Rock. And um, he, he passed away earlier this year. And I uh, interviewed him just maybe a month or two before he passed. Uh, I, I, I've spoken to him previously. I had spoken to him previously. In the book, he, he, he chronicles the long-lasting or the Luckman. Sorry. Thank you, uh, Ian. Michael Luckman. Uh, Alien Rock. He talks about the the connection between uh, many prominent rock musicians and the UFO ET phenomenon. They've either had um, uh, close encounters, uh, abductions, uh, and so forth, or they believe that they are receiving their musical inspiration uh, from off planet. They are a channel. Many musicians talk about how they are nothing more than the conduit. They they feel guilty almost about. You know, cashing their royalty checks. All right, maybe not that guilty. Uh, but but they they say, you know, I'm not responsible for this. I'm simply a conduit. I'm an antenna. And it comes to me. It comes to me in a dream. It comes to me, I don't know. Uh, it's interesting. But Kevin Estrella is another such musician who um, has sort of that same connection, he believes, or is receiving his music in a similar fashion. And uh, he recently caught the attention of uh, prominent Canadian ufologist Grant Cameron uh, when Kevin Estrella shared his recent UFO sightings uh, with Grant. And here to tell us more uh, is uh, the aforementioned musician from Pyramids on Mars, Kevin Estrella. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I am wonderful. Thanks for having me on, Richard. You're a local uh, musician. You're in the, are you in the Hamilton area? That I am. That right. I am. Not too far from you. And uh, all right, and uh, pyramids on uh, Mars. You've got what now? Two albums to your credit? Yes, I do. You just mm-hmm. released your second one not too too long ago. Yes. So uh, take me back then to your. Um, I mean, did, have you always felt that your your influence, your musical influences, and your or your inspiration was was coming off planet or did this begin with your first ufo sighting and i think it was 2014 i think you know i've been piecing it together for years and i've studied the ufo phenomenon um quite i really really started studying it back in the 1990s when i was in high school or sorry university and uh, that's when all this stuff was coming out with bob lazar talking about um you know um area 51 Mm -hmm. Yeah, Area 51 and, and, uh, and, you know, reverse engineering and stuff. And so that I became, I started to become really interested. And then I started reading a lot of uh, Bud Hopkins' books about alien abductions. And that really captured my interest. And, um, and then my, my, my drummer at the time, uh, Matt Rock, he was also studying crop circles. So we were both very, very um, passionate about the whole subject. And it's it's been a passion of mine for years. So when I created Pyramids on Mars back in 2011, my intention was to um, to marry my love of instrumental rock, and also to use it as a catalyst to um, educate people in regards to the real alien presence on our planet, and um, and and do it in a in a non-threatening way, but an inspirational way through music. And I guess um, 
there were other entities who had the same intentions and approval of what it was that I was doing, and they just um, um, made that more well aware last year. Let's put it that way. <laughs> okay, uh, and we will we will talk about the UFO sighting in in Hamilton, which is interesting uh, because, as we'll discover, nobody else seemed to have seen it. Yep. Um, it wasn't reported anywhere, and that's odd. But uh, it seems odd. But according to Grant Cameron, that's not uncommon. However. Uh, let's talk about the band for a, mo- a moment. Uh, sure. This is not a musical show, but but so but uh, uh, we don't play music really per se on the program. But how would you describe Pyramids on Mars? That your your style, your musical style, to those who haven't heard you. Well, my musical style, I'm I'm very much in the same style as guitarist Joe Satriani. I uh, fell in love with Satriani's music back in the 1980s when I first heard his album surfing with the alien and that, that was it for me i mean that was what i wanted to be able to play like uh be able, because the instrumental the way his guitar sang it was like it replaced the vocals for me and i just I felt a connection that way and i, I expressed myself better through playing that way and but my music uh, is more influenced by metal and and classical music um, probably more classical music. I, I, uh, I listen predominantly to nothing but Bach and Vivaldi, and I get my musical ideas from listening to, to what they do. And my approach on guitar is, is more of an approach of, I play more like a violin or a harpsichord lines on my guitar. And that's just kind of, that's just the way I am. This is, that's, that's how I communicate. So I spend a lot of time uh, honing that craft of instrumental rock. Um, so, um, yeah, and, you know, the best place to hear my music is on my website at www.pyramidsonmars.com, and you can hear both my albums on that. Now, Ian, I don't know, Ian, in the other room, I don't know if you're able to, uh, could we play a sample of that on the air a little bit later in the hour? Is that all right with you? Um, Absolutely. uh, uh, Kevin? Okay. Then we'll... we'll, uh, We'll, we'll we'll try to get uh, yeah I think it's important for people to hear this and and the and the name of the band Pyramids on Mars tell me about the the genesis of that well when I there there was an artist uh, who I listened to a, a drummer by the name of Virgil Donati and he uh, he he on one of his solo albums one of the songs was called Pyramids on Mars but I already knew about the D and M pyramids on Mars in the Cydonia region. So I just thought that that was a perfect name for a band, and I just wanted to adopt that name for what it was that I my intentions were with my music. And I also use a lot of analog keyboards like Moogs and Oberheims, which are predominantly used back in the 70s, which have a very analog, warm sound to them that kind of make your, makes my music sound like something, it was something you'd hear if you landed on Mars and were looking around. So... My music, you know, is, is intentional to try and take you places um, that are off off world, so to speak. And and how how does this? You know, I'm always fascinated to hear. I remember an interview Bob Dylan gave on on 60 Minutes, um, oh, about 10 years ago, uh, describing you know where these songs come from. And I've heard McCartney talk about it in a similar fashion. Uh, I'd like to hear your thoughts on on where you feel. Uh, you know, these compositions come to you from? Well, it's a, it's, a, it's a good question because I started to really start to piece things together when I met Grant Cameron this year. 
and and saw his presentations on on musicians who have had extraterrestrial contact and how they also get a lot of downloads of music uh, or get their inspiration from uh, feels like they're almost like a medium or a conduit. And I started to realize a lot more and more that that's really a lot of how my music is written because most of the time I don't feel like I'm even really writing the music. When I'm, when I'm channeled into the music, it, it has to come from a very deep place inside me. And uh, I reached a point of, like we'll call it, nirvana musical enlightenment like zen buddhism a moment back in in when i was in university listening to Jimi hendrix and it was i remember the exact moment when i when i reached a state of new consciousness and it was listening to um live Jimi hendrix live at monterey and it was the song foxy lady when, when the guitar solo kicked in and i was just air guitaring at that time and i was felt with so much energy and passion that my my head actually just feel like it expanded and was outside of my own head and i was like part of the universe and i that was the the connection for me that i realized that is a state i want to be in i connected with something much higher than myself and felt my spirituality extending outside my body that's interesting because Hendrix had a UFO experience, and uh, I, I, um, I interviewed, uh, uh, along with a colleague of mine, Gary Patterson, we interviewed Juma Sultan, who played with Hendrix at Woodstock mm. uh, with uh, uh, Gypsies, Sun and Rainbows, I think it was, the, the band. Yeah. Although they introduced them, if you, want, if you listen to the Woodstock album, they introduced Hendrix as, they introduced his band, his unit, as the Jimi Hendrix experience. He had to come on and correct them, even though it was Mitch Mitchell on, on, on drums. The rest, it was not, it was not uh, the, the Hendrix experience. That's right, yeah. Um, but, but Juma Sultan uh, talked about Hendrix, and he used an expression I thought was interesting in the interview. He said it was like he understood the music of the spheres. And um, that, that almost sounds sort of extraterrestrial in a way, doesn't it? Yes, it does. All right, Kevin Estrella is with us. Uh, uh, Pyramids on Mars is the band, and uh, we'll talk about his UFO encounter just about a year ago down the road in Hamilton. Uh, back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. All right, this is Pyramids on Mars. Kevin Estrella, the front man of this instrumental rock band. Let's just hear a little bit of this. Music that really sounds like it's from Mars. Very nice. Um, I also, uh, Kevin Estrella is uh, with us from Pyramids on Mars, and uh, am I also hearing a little bit of David Gilmore in there, Kevin? Absolutely, yes. Um, the, my top three guitar influences would be Jimi Hendrix, David Gilmore, and Joe Satriani. And as far as who's on the top, it's it always kind of gets mixed around. <laughs> but David Gilmore is absolutely uh, one of my biggest influences for sure. 
Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, now I'm just, I'm trying to remember um, Michael Luckman's uh, book Alien Rock. Yeah. And uh, I, I'm no doubt you're familiar with the book. You've probably uh, digested it. I'm guessing. Yes, I have. Yeah. All right. Was Gilmore mentioned in there? Did David Gilmore ever ha- have a, um, a, a an encounter, a UFO encounter? Do you remember? You remember? I didn't see with David Gilmore. I know he, they talked. They, they focused a lot on 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 Elvis. And you know John Lennon, the Moody Blues, a lot you know with, um, and a lot with a lot with uh, with David Bowie as well. Right, I right. I don't think it mentioned uh, David Gilmore. Yeah, I uh, I was fascinated to learn that Cat uh, Stevens, who now goes by the name of Yosef, uh, um, had a, an alien encounter, or a, a, I think it was an abduction uh, encounter, and uh, Ace Frehley. Well, perhaps no surprise there from Kiss. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that was kind of a given, I think. Um, um, okay, so let's let's talk about your UFO sighting. This is in in 2014. Take us back and walk us through it. Sure. You know, as I said, um, you know, I've always <clears throat> I've I, I've met six people in my lifetime who were direct experiencers, um, including my drummer actually. <clears throat> Sorry, excuse me, my drummer Matt, who when, when we when we broke up our first band, I mean, he's he's had four he's seen four craft. And he, you know, he's always been studying crop circles. He, he dropped, he quit the band to study crop circles full time. So I, I was kind of jealous that, you know, I was like, okay, he's had an experience. How come I haven't? And then it actually happened last year, and it uh, completely changed my life, and it changed the way I looked. I really look at the universe because what I saw, it took me six months to piece together to really understand what it was I was looking at because of the way it looked. And this thing came right across my backyard. It was only like a you know less than fifteen hundred feet away. This is August so, of of twenty fourteen, evening ten thirty. That's right. It was, it was August twenty first, two thousand fourteen, at ten thirty p.m. Over so, Hamilton. So here I am. Um, it's a um, I, I step on onto my deck, and it was a very clear night. There's not a, not a sky, you know, not a star in the sky, and from. Um, my right-hand side, my neighbor, they have this big tree, and this object all of a sudden, within five seconds of me stepping on my deck, this object appeared to come from behind the tree. And at first, I thought it was a meteor, because it was orange and red, and it looked like it had this stuff streaming off the top of it and out the, you know, along the bottom of it and out the back, like almost like it was like on fire, like, like mist or, or flames or something. I didn't know what the heck it was, but then when it finally came full into full view, I realized that it wasn't a meteor at all because it was moving way too slow for a meteor. It was moving maybe the speed of a of an airplane or a helicopter. And we live in um, in Hamilton. We I, we live uh, the airport's not too far from where we are, so there's air, you know there's aircraft activity. But this was definitely not a plane because it was very close to to me. It was only maybe. 12 to 1500 feet above the ground and maybe about the same distance away and it moved from the right to the left and what what i finally realized what i was looking at it was well it was disc shaped that was the first thing that caught my mind it was clearly clearly disc shaped like looking at a side the side view of it so it was it was aerodynamic along the top and the bottom completely completely you know um, aerodynamic and maybe 40 or 50 feet in diameter. Now, uh, what I finally realized six months later, what gave it that look to make it look like it was on fire 
was that this object was actually covered in plasma. So it definitely had a a, a, a sharp, you know, like I could see the edge of the, of the craft, but but this this plasma was streaming along the top of it and along the bottom of it and and, and streaming out the back of it, like almost leaving a trail. And how do you and know it was plasma? Definitely plasma. Why? Why do you believe plasma? Because <clears throat> because uh, when I finally saw, you know, I actually was looking at pictures of the sun and seeing stuff streaming off the sun. And that's all of a sudden when I realized how it was behaving, that I realized that this craft was covered in plasma. And that was also confirmed by MUFON, who did the, did, did, when I filed a report, they did the full reporting uh, or investigation of it. And when they asked me certain questions about it, the way it looked, and then how it looked when it moved away from me, they confirmed that, yes, it was covered with an object that was covered in plasma, and the way I described it, it, was, it, was, it actually made sense that I was looking at a physical object that was covered in plasma. Right. Because the other thing that, that it, it changed it the way it looked as was it started to move away from me, because it moved from the, um, from the right side of my backyard to the left, and as it was moving, it was moving away. And as its tail got more towards me, the object itself started to appear darker and darker in appearance to make it look like that. And I realized that the, the light source was actually not even coming from the craft at all. It was completely black. But what was happening was as it was moving away, it had more of this whitish vortex, like umbrella thing that was kind of swirling around the front of it and kind of covering the whole thing. And I was thinking, well, was that the thing that was making it look like it was on fire? And so, as MUFON explained, um, that the way an object looks with plasma, you can see the plasma from certain angles if something is covered in plasma, but if it's, if it's turned a certain way, you cannot see the, cannot see the plasma stream. Right. Therefore, okay. they were able to confirm that what I saw was definitely a solid physical object in the sky. Got it. It wasn't uh, a play on light. Uh, Kevin Estrella is with us. The band is Pyramids on Mars. Had a UFO sighting August of 2014 in Hamilton. Uh, now, you, did, you reported it the following year, in t this year, in 2015, when you attended a UFO symposium, I guess, in my hometown, Brantford, correct? That's right, yes. Uh, you, you, you spoke with MUFON representative there, Stu Bundy. That's right. And he took the report. That's correct. Why did you wait so long? Oh, I didn't wait so long. I, um, I, I, I filled out the report last year. Oh, I see. Okay. I'm like just, I filled I, it out the, like the, phone, the next day. I, I phoned them and, and called them. I see. Okay. So I'm just, yeah, I'm just following the, the, the chronology here on the email. So uh, you, you filled it out, you, you filed it the next day, but then I guess you, what, you filed it again when you met Stu or, or you spoke to Stu in, in 2015? I spoke to Stu in twenty in, in in twenty fifteen. Okay. Yes. Now here is the interesting thing. No record of any UFO sighting in the city of Hamilton the night of August twenty one. If, I mean, this that's, that would be a pretty spectacular thing to see. Uh, I mean, this is like a fireball hurtling through the sky. Yes. And nobody else saw it. Nobody else saw it. That was confirmed by. Um, I got that confirmation when I went on Rob McConnell's show, the the X Zone. Uh, I went on his show the weekend after the the, AC, the ACE exhibition, 
So uh, when I went on his show before he before we, he actually interviewed me, he said he went on to every single website that he could find that they used to track anomalies. They could not find anything the night of August twenty first, two thousand fourteen. There was there was nothing, um, and nobody else had reported it according to Mufon. So from Mufon's point of view, there was nobody else who reported seeing this thing, which didn't make any sense to me because I was it was only ten thirty at night. This thing was moving very slow. It was looked like it was on fire. It was only like you know twelve hundred feet off the ground. How can I be the only person in the city of five hundred thousand people to to see this thing? It just didn't make any sense. But Rob McConnell, their their show confirmed that there was no sighting, that there was no anomalies, to the point that I got an email from their producer the following day saying Due to the lack of evidence, we're no longer following. You know, we're no longer pursuing your story. Please don't contact us again. Uh, wow. <laughs> um, well, that must have kind of stung. But did, what about Peter Peter Davenport at the uh, the UFO um, National UFO Reporting Center uh, in in Washington? Did you contact Peter Davenport? I contacted the Washington. Yeah, actually, I did contact the uh, Washington UFO Reporting Center. They were the first people I contacted, and I filled out a report there, but I, I never got a response back from them. All right, and then at a certain point, I'm not sure if this was in, at the, uh, the same symposium in, in Brantford, you, you connected with Canadian ufologist, the man behind presidentialufos.com, uh, Grant Cameron. Yes. And um, you went up to him and you told him your story, and, and what did he say? Well... When I first um, when I first heard of the Alien Cosmic Exhibition that was going on, and I was curious to see who was presenting, and I recognized a lot of people like Stanton Friedman and Paula Hellier were there. And then when I saw what Grant Grant Cameron's presentation was on, which was on aliens, UFOs, musicians, and the connection, and why aliens are using musicians, I was just completely dumbfounded, like just shocked. Like it was like, oh my God, this is all about me. There's there's something going on here that's bigger than I am. So I I felt like I had to go and see him because he knew what was going on. And so when I went to see him, it was you know I was hoping to get some answers, and I definitely did get answers uh, watching his presentation. But then it was like it was like when I found out about what Mufon said next door about my sighting that the you only know, like when I walked up to them they said yeah I'm glad you're here we're doing a presentation on you tomorrow and I'm like what <laughs> I'm like are you kidding I haven't heard from you guys in a year and you're doing a presentation on me and then when I asked okay how many other people saw this thing and they said you're the only one I was I was almost sick I was just like I'm going crazy this this is impossible what is going on here how can nobody else have seen this thing and so then I had to go to Grant to see what what was going on like and what I started to find out was, I honestly feel that these beings, they wanted me to wake up. It was time for me to wake up and understand what was going on. Because there was just too many coincidences. And this is the other thing that I'm discovering, is the, is the, is the number of, of synchronicities start to increase in your life. And there's been so many, and I'll get into those later on. Of It's not just now. It's like it's, it's happening faster and faster, these synchronicities. So the synchronicity of all the stuff of MUFON being there, who took my report, 
who when I when I walked up to their table, they turned their laptop around and showed me, you know, immensely the diagrams that I had drawn them and they were doing a presentation on me. Here's Grant Cameron who knows, you know, that musicians are being contacted and he had all these answers. And when I told him my story that I was the only one who saw this thing, according to MUFON, it didn't surprise him at all. He says, Yeah, it happens all the time. I'm like, What? Does it happen yeah, more often with musicians? What's that? Does it have to happen? I mean, because listen, there have been many mass sightings, obviously. I mean, yeah. Phoenix Lights and Stephenville Lights and uh, you know, on and on and on. Uh, we're familiar with the mass sightings. Um, but the, 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 those cases where only one person sees it and Grant Cameron says that's actually common. Um, that's right. But I mean, he was there to speak about the relationship between musicians and UFOs. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it is it common for musicians only uh, to see to see these, and no one else sees them? Well, what he's finding is like he's tried to do it a testing with other groups of people, like he you know like golfers, and he wanted to find out how many golfers have been contacted by extraterrestrials, and he found it was none. And but he found with this with the with the music thing. That it was just, it was just overflowing with the number of mu- of musicians who have had direct contact with extraterrestrials, and he found it, you know, absolutely fascinating. Uh, he didn't start taking it seriously until Chris Bledsoe had contacted Grant and told him that, you know, the beings told him to look in the music. The message is in the music, and he gave two particular songs to check out that were Cashmere by by Led Zeppelin, and After the Gold Rush by Neil Young. But then that was the catalyst that, that, that got Grant's attention when he, when he knew that, you know, that Neil Young was from his hometown, so then he had some interest. And then he started to find all these connections of all these musicians who've been contacted. And so, you know, he told me several times, you know, Kevin, um, you're, not, you're not alone on this. You know, that you're, you know, you're not special. <laughs> It's like, that's okay. All right, uh, Kevin, stay put. We'll take a timeout, come back, and perhaps uh, maybe we'll hear another track from Pyramids on Mars. Music inspired by aliens, perhaps. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. This is uh, Pyramids on Mars. This is going to shake the dust from <laughs> some of our our uh, listeners. This is not typical Zoomer radio fare, granted, but uh, uh, our guest, Kevin Estrella, is uh, one of the principals uh, in this band. And uh, he's here to tell us about his UFO experiences and how he believes his music is inspired uh, by ETs. Uh, okay, so... Um, I'm I'm guessing that um, uh, your conversations with Grant Cameron probably included, you know, a discussion about John Lennon's famous uh, UFO sighting when he was living with May Pang in Greenwich Village in uh, in 1974. Yes. Now, it seems to me uh, I remember a, a, um, speaking with May Pang, and and uh, she she talked about that, and of course Lennon mentioned it on his Walls and Bridges album in 1974. He wrote the date down, and he called May Pang out onto the balcony, and she saw it, and um, they actually called Yoko, uh, and um, they were sort of 
watching it, I guess, travel down the Hudson River. I'm not sure. But but in that case, were they the only two to see it? I, memory serves. I thought May Pang said, you know, everybody saw it. I'm not too sure. Um, from um, different sources, I'm getting that there were some other people who saw it. Um, I'm not too sure now. Um, yeah, I'm okay. not really quite sure because... Well, you're certainly in good company. Yeah, that's the point. With you know, a lot of musicians uh, have had this experience. Whether they were the only ones that saw it or other people saw it, um, so I mean, where where do we go from here with this? Were there subsequent subsequent sightings after this? For me, there was not a subsequent sighting, but um, I did have. That wasn't the first time that something has happened to me. Uh, I had a sighting back in 2000, uh, something strange that happened that that happened with Matt, my drummer, actually, and we still have not been able to explain it. Um, and what happened was we were up in Huntsville uh, at my, my uh, our, our singer's cottage, and we went down to the lake to go for a swim. And it was like a you know perfect you know cloudless night, full moon. And um, it was Matt and I were in the water looking up and, you know, admiring the stars when all of a sudden it was like the moon all of a sudden turned into flames or it was something the same size as the moon and was coming right at us. And we could hear it coming at us. We could hear the, the, the and all of a sudden it was like it was like almost like a flash or like it just disappeared. It was gone. And we both like almost screamed going, whoa. What the heck was that? Was that a UFO? And we don't know what the heck happened. It was like, it was like we should have died. Um, it, it was like it was like the moon had set on fire and had fallen out of the sky and was in the atmosphere and was coming right directly for us. But I don't know if it was the moon or whether it was something the same size as the moon. I still don't remember to this day, and I ha- and, and I have a blank out of a memory, and so does he. In fact, I tried contacting him uh, several weeks ago, and from his memory, he thought that this object came from out of the water into the sky. So we can't even get our story straight. Hmm. Um, listen, I, you're a musician. I, I'm sure you hear this all the time whenever you talk about, uh, whenever we talk about, you know, rock stars and having seen UFOs and so forth, and you know, the celebrated case of Jerry Garcia, uh, who I believe believes or i believe said that he had been abducted and and uh, was taken aboard some craft and was there for several days and uh well we all know jerry garcia had a certain um a penchant uh for certain hallucinogens and so forth so whenever we talk about musicians uh and ufo sightings of course the question has to come up were you taking anything were you smoking anything well, well, well. Last year, I was completely sober, absolutely sober. I was, you know, I just finished putting my kids to bed. Mm-hmm. So when I went out on the deck, you know, I was completely very, very sober. Um, back in two thousand, okay, yeah, we had we had you know several beers, um, but we weren't like out of our minds. No, no, okay, all right. I had to ask. I had to ask because people yeah. are. That's what people are thinking, right? Many people, right? Yeah. Oh, he's a musician. Well. <laughs> Um, okay, so uh, b- b- but that's the problem when you, when when it's hard to separate the wheat from the chaff in some of these cases because, like I mentioned, Jerry Garcia uh, or Ace Freely, 
Mm-hmm. You know, th- these guys had a, a history, obviously, uh, of uh, imbibing or taking certain uh, substances, uh, which may have been responsible for um, their experience. Hard to say. Hard mm-hmm. to say. Now, in terms of um, – uh, well, well, bring us up to date then. I mean, you you mentioned some of these synchronicities that are that have been occurring, and they are increasing. Yeah. Uh, let's let's delve into that. This is. I mean, I love serendipity. It's one of my favorite favorite topics. What's going on with you? Kevin? Oh boy, where do I start? Um, what I started to realize, well, with Grant's presentations about consciousness, uh, is that this whole UFO this whole UFO thing is based on consciousness. And these extraterrestrials are trying to help us get to the next stage of our evolution of ourselves uh, through consciousness because these beings are telepathic. I mean, how do you fly? How do you fly a craft? You, you fly it with your mind. There's no steering wheel there. Well, actually, from what I heard, they have, there's an option to use a steering wheel, but they say it's much easier to use your mind. Um, and how do I know this? Because I have friends who have been on board the craft. You know, I'm friends with Chris Bledsoe, and he's told me some things privately that just completely are mind-blowing. But Yeah, just let, it, let our listeners in on, on, uh, on who Chris Bledsoe is. Sure. Um, if, you, if you remember back in the 1990s, the movie Fire in the Sky, the Travis Walton story. Yes. Well, Chris Bledsoe, he, his story tops that, and his story is being turned into a major motion picture by Warner Brothers to be released 2016. Okay. So his story is going to be in the mainstream. And um, he, you know, but his story is more, you know, he was given a message and to share with the world. And, and he was very reluctant to share, with the, share that message. But it needed to be shared. But um, so his story is going to be coming out next, you know, next year. And uh, you can, you know, you can, you, you can, you, you know, Google him on YouTube and, and uh, watch, you know, watch the different programs of you know what Mufon did on on on, on him, um, but they're not they're not very good because they actually make it look like you know like he's crazy. It was not a very good, not done very very nicely. All right, but, listen, uh, we'll take a time out here, Kevin. When we come back, let's uh, delve into some of these wonderful serendipities uh, that are occurring in your life, perhaps as a result of this uh, UFO sighting. Back with more of the Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Kevin Estrella is with us. Pyramids on Mars is the band, and he is an experiencer and believes his music is inspired uh, or channeled, perhaps, um, from ETs. So uh, you mentioned the serendipities. Let's let's spend some time uh, talking about that, Kevin. Yes, the synchronicities. So uh, there's three of them. The three there's three big ones that I wanted to share uh, share with people. First of all, if you think that there is synchronicity in your life or there's something strange like you were thinking about somebody and all of a sudden they phone you or stuff you should be writing these things down because the universe is trying to tell you something or if there seems to be a very strange coincidence with something you should write it down and pay attention to it because the universe is trying to tell you something so here are some very very interesting things where these things are starting to speed up now and it's almost like brain like almost like breadcrumbs being left for me to pick up the pieces and and these beings are trying to tell me something so um a few a few months ago i had this dream and uh from you know grant talks about many times about musicians having downloads or getting different ideas in dreams 
what happened to me was I had this dream where the, these uh, three greys were handing me my custom electric guitar. And it was very similar to the Joe Saturani model that I have currently because I've got uh, mine done in a chrome finish, so it almost looks like a spaceship that I saw. But what I noticed about it was that there was this deck, this this, this design that was in the neck, which was it was a, this green double helix DNA pattern, and I recognized it as being a, a, a crop circle that I've seen many years ago. This, this it's this famous crop circle known as the DNA crop circle, and. Um, and I really thought that was really cool, the way it was done in the neck. Coincidentally, three days after I had this dream, I started to get followed on Twitter by a company called Neck Illusions, who <laughs> creates these these uh, custom graphic neck designs. And so I, I went to them, and I, I, I sent them the picture of the, of, the, of the crop circle and said, I'd like to do this in, in green. Are you able to do it? And they were so amazed at the design that they took it upon themselves to do it to me not only for free but they made an endorsement deal with me <laughs> wow yeah so they created you know they um, now on their website you know if you go to neckillusions.com you know there's the artist selections and i'm in there and there's a page with me with my design this this design that was given to me in this dream and i get royalties now from it as well that's pretty wild. That is pretty wild. Okay. Yeah. So that's synchronicity number one. As I said, you know, I had this dream. I saw this design in the neck, and three days afterwards, a company, uh, you know, approaches me who actually is able to create it, and not only create it, they actually give it the endorsement deal. So that's that's a huge synchronicity right there. Um, another one was a few months ago. I was contacted by a, a, a DJ out on the on the on the, on the west coast. Alan Lore, and um, I told him that he needs to uh, check on my background with my with my UFO sighting. Well, he immediately writes me back this long email explaining how he was chosen to be the voice for me to play my music because he's an experiencer and something happened to him back in 1985, where and he actually had his own radio show called Third Eye Opening. And he says, that, you know, he was must have been that he was meant to contact me because he felt you know there was a connection there. And that he was also friends with Billy Sherwood, the new bass player for the band Yes. So that immediately sparked my attention because I know that uh, both Rick Wakeman and John Anderson from Yes were directly contacted by extraterrestrials. Uh, John Anderson actually had a being walk through a wall when he was in Las Las Vegas and 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 give him information and 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 leave. So I knew that um, it was, you know, they were they were definitely experiencers. So I say to Alan, you know, is there any way for me you to be able to get me in contact with John Anderson? And then six hours later, I get an email from Grant Cameron saying, "Here is um, um, a small clip of John Anderson talking about music coming from the Pleiades." So I'm like, "This is like this is just too weird." This is really weird. And I contacted Grant and I said, do you realize what just happened here? And I tell you what, you know, and I explained to him, and he was even freaked out. He says, you have to contact Susan Chancellor because she just interviewed John Anderson, you know, last year, and she can get you in touch with him. Because I think what the universe is trying to tell me is that it's important for John Anderson to hear my music, for me to get in contact with him. So I eventually was able to do that, and I sent a huge, long email introductory to, to John Anderson. 
So you know, have you heard I'm back? Trying to, trying to listen to what's going on, what the universe is trying to tell me. Have you heard back from John Anderson? Not yet. Hmm. Not yet. But I'm very curious. <laughs> I know he's on tour right now. So, so like, here's these synchronicities. Now, here's the big one. This is the big synchronicity. Um, I have ESP. I can't control it. It just it just happens. And I didn't realize uh, the synchronicity that um, I re- I became really consciously aware of my ESP when I was first writing music for my first my first uh, Pyramids on Mars CD. And that's when I really became consciously aware of all these synchronicities where I'd be thinking about somebody far away and all of a sudden they'd phone me. Or I would be thinking of somebody and I'd call them and they'd say, oh my God, we were just talking about you. And I haven't talked to these people for a long time. Now, so there was, all that kind of was happening. But then last year, I had my biggest ESP incident where it was, it was Robin Williams' death. And what happened was he died on August 11th, 2014, on a Monday. It was a Sunday. I was, it was around 11.30 in the morning, and I was all of a sudden overcome with this wave of, of extreme sadness. And I saw Robin Williams' face. It, it was so strong in my mind. And it was the ending of the movie Bicentennial Man, where he plays an android who lives for 250 years, and he decides he wants to die because he's tired of outliving his, his loved ones. And so the last scene you see in the movie is he's lying on the bed and he's got that sad smile on his face as he, as the life is leaving his body and the camera's just slowly panning away. And I was so overcome with grief and sadness seeing this in my mind. It was so burning. It was like it was like the movie Star Wars where Obi-Wan Kenobi's overcome with, you know, a sudden disturbance you know, in the force and you know, I see millions of voices and suddenly silenced. Um, that's what I saw. And I was wide awake when this happened. And I was really overcome with this intense sadness, like a wave hit me. And then it was a little bit more than 24 hours later on the Monday where my wife says, oh, by the way, did you hear that Robin Williams died this morning? And I'm like, oh, my goodness, that's so sad. Ah, and, oh, my and, God, I saw him dying yesterday. Right, right. And, and But why do you attribute that uh, to the... Why would I attribute that? To No, why do you attribute that, that, that um, ESP... Uh, to your ET experience, or do you? Your UFO because experience. my UFO experience happened exactly ten days after that. Ah, ten days after. So exactly ten days after that. And so, do you think that this psychic ability uh, comes from uh, aliens? Aliens are psychic. The aliens are psychic. They they always have been. They're tele they're they're telepathic. They they know what we think. They're they're always there. Um, they're 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 connected to us. We're connected to them. The whole universe is is one is one is one consciousness. And this is the other thing that I that, I've, I, that I'm discovering that I feel through my music is because when I write music, I I don't I don't I don't get it until I'm actually channeled, until I feel like I'm connected to something else that's not me. Because most of the time when I'm writing my music, I'm not really writing it. It's, I feel like I just feel like um, an artist who's been given a blank canvas with a black outline, and I'm just there, like you know, like color by numbers, where you know, you know, you know, you know four is red and and three is blue and and you know, two is yellow, and all of a sudden, oh, the pit, you know, the, the song is done. I you know, I just feel like you know, like I'm an automatic pilot, but it, it's all it all stems through. Um, 
my through 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 passion through through the you know the music becoming one with the music and just feeling the you know the emotions and it's driven by the emotion of the music all right so what do you think their their uh, plans are for for you and your band uh, pyramids on mars do they have do you think there is kind of a an end game here i i believe that the end game is they want me to continue to to raise consciousness and to you know um, use my music as a vehicle to to um, to spread the word basically um, to continue to write and to continue to tap into the the universal consciousness and let the music flow through there and become a higher energy source and uh, and and spread the word that you know that they are here and they are trying to help us to to reach a new state of evolution. And I think that's also the other message behind the neck design, the DNA sequence, because I, I talked to uh, Patty, Patty Greer, who's a, a crop circle um, specialist. Yep, she's been on the show a number of times. Yes. yes, and so I sent her the DNA thing, and I asked her, what does it mean? And she says she thinks it's, like, she thinks it's symbolic of our, of our next state of evolution. The, the DNA? The DNA, Our DNA yeah, is the evolving. DNA, the DNA crop circle thing that I saw, that's, that's her interpretation of it. Hmm. You ever thought about performing inside a crop circle? That might be interesting. Oh, yeah. That would be amazing. I, then I'd probably really tap into it. Uh, I mean, and you wouldn't necessarily even have to go to, like, Hampton in England, uh, in, in Georgetown. Are you familiar with the crop circles not too far from here in Georgetown? Yes. Actually, yes. I, I was in a crop circle in Georgetown. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the synchronicities continue. So, yeah, maybe you should think about actually recording. I, I don't know if that's possible. Could you record an album inside a crop circle? I can definitely re- record bed tracks for sure. Mm. So what's yeah. next? Uh, uh, tell us where, where, are you, where are you performing and, and where can people see you? Well, um, I don't have any, any shows lined up right now. But I will be, you know, um, I'm trying to get into some festivals for next year. And right now I'm, I'm releasing, you know, I plan on releasing some, some uh, uh, videos to go along with my CD for next year. And I'm actually I'm working on creating guitar lessons, uh, online videos uh, for, uh, uh, for guitar instructional. Oh, very cool. So I've got are... a whole bunch of things that are going on. Plus, you know, I'm, I'm, always, I'm always on the radio. I'm always doing radio shows. And you know, doing more more magazine reviews. Um, I'm about to hit forty thousand Twitter followers at the end of this month. I get about five thousand new uh, a month. So you know, Pyramids of Mars is just blowing up and going you know going big. Excellent. And and, and the other members of the band. I mean, uh, you, I think you mentioned the drummer is an experiencer. What about the other members? Are they along for the ride, or do they are they also experiencers? <laughs> My brother plays bass, and he is um, a, a, a complete agnostic who doesn't believe in, in UFOs at all. <laughs> um, he's completely opposite for me. <laughs> so it's, it's very difficult for, uh, you know, I, I, for me to talk about. I can't talk to him about these things because he just, you know, he's of the mindset of he doesn't believe anything. <laughs> he doesn't believe anything. Interesting. No. All right. Well. Uh, a real pleasure meeting you, uh, Kevin. Thanks for reaching out, and I'm glad we had this conversation. I enjoyed it. Oh, thank you. I'm glad to be here, Richard. Give there, us a there's website. So much, there's so much to talk about, you know, and so much more that, you know, of what I've learned from you know people that I've spoken to. 
Um, but you know, we've covered a lot of a lot of bases in regards to musicians, and uh, you know, there's many of us who are contactees. Uh, give us a website. www.pyramidsonmars.com. All right. Again, a real pleasure. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you. My uh, thanks to Ian Robertson, Albert Vinzel, as always. Back next week, we've got Rosemary Ellen Guiley. We'll talk Christmas miracles. Uh, we have Joel Skousen. We'll talk about anomalies and that horrible shooting, that mass shooting in uh, California. And Daniel Estulin will be here to talk about the Tavistock Institute, a brand new book. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed, nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.